adventures and adventures in topography. Essentially, topography is really nothing more than the detailed study of place, an area or region or town, etc. A show that takes the listener on a wayward topographical ramble around the margins of London. The walker at the edges of the city, the, the, the liminal figure who is not so conceptual in his practice. Drawing on a rich tradition of old walking guides, maps, literature and ephemera, Nick Papadimitriou and John Rogers embark on a series of suburban perambulations and outer circle rambles. I like those um, pre-moulded uh, concrete pails that run along the river here. With the, with the mosses and uh, lichens growing on them. For me, such things are psychedelic. Hello and welcome to Adventures and Adventures in Topography on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, John Rogers, and my co-host here, Nick Papadimitriou. Good evening, John. How are you, Nick? I'm pretty good and uh, I'm really looking forward to the Deep Topography Book Festival held here live at Hay on Y. <laughs> we are sat in the Resonance FM studio, uh, surrounded by books. That's a slight exaggeration. We've got six books here in front of us, actually. Uh, the additional two are provided by uh, Ben Thompson. As he was leaving the studio, as we passed, he handed us two very beguiling books, which uh, we were just mentioned by title and no more, because we haven't had a chance to look at them. 13 Rivers of Thirteen Rivers to the Thames by Brian Waters. Brilliant name for a book like that. And London Beneath the Pavement by Michael Harrison. And uh, John and I will be coming to fists outside the studio after the programme to see which one of us takes which book home. Ah, uh, well, no, you could do, well, I think there's a natural home for each of them, unless we go counterintuitive. Listeners, quickly, in your mind, think which of us would be most suited to which book. There's your answer. Um, I think if we were going counterintuitive, who would take which book? Uh, you would take 13 Rivers to the Thames. That's right. And I would have London Beneath the Pavement. Exactly. That's like a travel book for you, isn't it? Um, that might as well be about uh, Syria. I'm not that interested in it. I want the 13 <laughs> rivers to the Thames. Let me have it. No. <laughs> so uh, this week we are taking you on a ramble through the pages of some of our favourite topographical books. Um, these are books which have guided us and inspired us at various points. Uh, books that, for some reason or another, although we've now done, I think, 13 shows, uh, haven't really been mentioned in the previous shows and haven't really been used for walks as such. I can't say why exactly, but we're hoping to rectify that a little bit today by paying homage to these, uh, what we regard as influential books upon ourselves, and that have something particular to say about the uh, areas that we're interested in. Would you concur, Nick? I would describe them, from my viewpoint, more as holy books. Uh, oh. Certainly the Middlesex in British, Roman and Saxon times by Montague Sharp, which is the first book I'll be looking at, uh, came upon me like a revelation about 12 years ago. And uh, I do actually uh, get on my knees and pray to it every evening. And what do you say when you're praying? Do you have a, like a mantra for it? Yes, I say, open my mind so I can absorb the landscape. Wow. Shall we have a reading from... That book, <laughs> that book, I forgot the title, uh, uh, by Montague Sharp, uh, by Hayley LePayne. Would you like a reading first, or do you want to waffle something about it? Oh, no, let's get Hayley to set the ball rolling. So here is a reading by Hayley LePayne with music by Europa 51.
In order to appreciate the aspect in early times of what is now Middlesex, we must not take the condition of the county today with its towns, roads, well-cultivated fields, and in imagination interpose here and there patches of woodland and heath, but rather reverse the scene and chiefly see large stretches of primeval forest hiding small village entrenchments with their connecting trackways, while here and there in the open glade patches of cultivated land appear. Marshy fringes of varying width, a paradise for wildfowl, marked the courses of upwards of four and twenty rivers and brooks, the flow of which, choked with weeds and accumulated debris, had but little scar, so that after heavy rainfall, the bordering levels, still to be traced, remained for days large sheets of water exhaling damp and mist, until it slowly drained away, so that only the higher grounds lifted themselves from the morasses and woods. Even a thousand years later, a good third of the land was probably covered with wood, thicket or scrub. Another third consisted of heaths and moors. In the east and west, there were vast tracts of marshland. The wild boar and wild ox were chased in the woods of Hampstead. From Middlesex in British, Roman and Saxon times by Montague Sharp. So that reading there by Hayley LePay with music by Europa 51. Nick, what can you tell us about this wonderful book? Well, I first became aware of uh, Montague Sharp or Sir Montague Sharp uh, during a period when I was going through uh, a hippie stage of my uh, topographic interests. And I uh, bought a copy of John Mitchell's View Over Atlantis in which he mentioned uh, Sir Montague Sharp as a kind of old straight tracker precursor to Alfred Watkins, who, of course, popularised the concept of ley lines. Mm. I became quite intrigued with this. And then I began to find that Sir Montague Sharp's name started to crop up all over the place. For instance, at one point, he was chairman of the Middlesex County Council. Uh -huh. uh, he was uh, an early... Uh, in fact, he was a co-founder of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds with W.H. Hudson, a topographic writer I have a very high opinion of. And uh, he was also uh, president of the London and Middlesex Archaeological Society. And eventually I found a copy of this book in, uh, I think it's called Henry Forbes uh, Bookshop. Uh, Henry Pords. That's right, in uh, Charing Cross Road. And Fine I purchased bookshop. it for a mere £20. And I was intrigued to see that the book was inscribed and signed by the author and dedicated to... Ernest Westlake, who was a founder of the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, uh, an organisation I've taken an interest in over the years. They were kind of like proto-New Age alternative to the Boy Scout movement, I've mm. heard them described as. Pacifists, weren't they? They were pacifists, vegetarians, sun worshippers, nudists, and they uh, also ate wholemeal food. They still exist. They do indeed. They have an annual folk moot at Sandy Balls in the New Forest, and I have actually been there. Although not to attend the folk moot, I was at the time with the uh, British Conservation Trust, and uh, we did some clearing of uh, rhododendrons in the woods down there. Mm. Um, it's a wonderful book. I mean, the, can you tell us a little bit about the some of the... Uh, I hesitate to call them maps. They're more, they're, they're more like uh, grids that are laid out. Showing things like vestiges of the Romano-British occupation, but laid out on a kind of a grid pattern. 
Well, I'm not trained in archaeology, and my knowledge of early history is quite sketchy also, so I can't uh, uh, testify to the veracity of Sir Montague Sharp's claims. But his interest as an archaeologist is in drawing up a, a palimpsest landscape of Middlesex, a place that I was becoming interested in at that time. I realised that a lot of my walks were in Middlesex. They were within a uh, range of where I lived. Um, it seemed to be a curiously invisible county in the sense that it was dissolved in 1965 as an actual administrative county and just seemed to linger in, in, in postal codes or in uh, county courts or... The cricket club, of course, the Marylebone Cricket Club are the, are the Middlesex cricket team, I think. I don't know much about cricket. <laughs> but um, the thing that really drew me to Sharp, and it was what John Mitchell had picked up on, was Sir Montague Sharp's claim that the parish mother churches of Middlesex uh, could be placed on a grid that corresponded with what he called the Roman possesse, which were... Uh, field areas, um, about 612 ro Roman poles long on each side. And um, the grid created a kind of checkerboard pattern across Middlesex. I was intrigued by this because when I wandered around Middlesex through its industrial estates, along its arterial roads, through its little 1930s colonies and shopping centres, uh, and thought about Sharp, I became aware that there was a, uh, a, an underlying structure to the county, possibly, and it was certainly an intriguing idea. And at one point I uh, actually uh, obtained some Sharp pencils and some tracing paper and decided to do some fairly rudimentary calculations, draw up a grid on the uh, tracing paper and then place that on a 125,000th ordnance survey map and find out whether the edges of the possesse, these squares, actually corresponded with the, um, with the uh, uh, mother churches of the parishes. And I did actually... Uh, duplicate the process this afternoon in uh, Swiss Cottage Library and I'll just go through this a little bit I have to use my notes here yeah. Sharp maintains that the uh, edge of each square measured 612 Roman poles which he uh, interpreted as 1980 yards um, a yard equals 0 0.9144 metres and if you, therefore, calculate, uh, the edge of a square would be 1,810 metres. Well, as you know, a centimetre is 250 metres on a 125,000th map. And uh, working from that, I was able to draw up the grid. Uh, it took me hours. I used a set square. and The suspense is killing us. What happened? What was the conclusion? You showed a lot of your methodology here. I think that is leading up to something which is possibly less than impressive. I don't know whether it's my maths or whether it's the Montague Sharp, but there work, was no correspondence was whatsoever. There. there was nothing there. But um, maybe someone listening could work. Could have heard the maths <laughs> and went, "No, you've got that all horribly wrong." There was a lot of maths there. Is maths a part of deep topography? Is, it, is deep topography a subset of maths? Is maths a subset of deep topography? I'll do what I have to do to find out what I have to find <laughs> out. So, how is Sharp relevant to what you've practiced as a deep topographer? He, made, he uh, made me very, very aware of Middlesex as an environment. And uh, the maps are superb in that book. Uh, he shows all the rivers. And when I was doing my River Run Barnet section of my Middlesex County Council website, uh, I used that book extensively as a shortcut to finding streams that I'd overlooked. 
Wow. If this was a radio show, I suppose, a bit like the Museum of Curiosity, a wonderful show on Radio 4, or if it was something like a Room 101, Sir Montague Sharp would go in our library of classic texts, our kind of canonical sphere, I suppose. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. OK, well, I'm going to play you now a reading from The Diary of a London Explorer by William Margrie, and that's the next book that we'll be talking about. It is an old jibe that the Londoner knows little and cares less about the history and romance of his own city. He is usually at a loss to answer the inquiry of a stranger, and it is left to the country cousin to discover the heart of London beating beneath the monotony of everyday business life. A band of men and women have just formed themselves into a society to point out to Londoners the error of their ways. They have founded a kind of modern Pickwick Club and pledged themselves to study London in all her moods. A secondary but more ambitious task they have undertaken is to interest Londoners in London. As their emblem, they have chosen a spray of London pride and wearing this in their coats, the Foundation members meet outside Southwark Cathedral next Saturday afternoon. A marching song is being written specially for the members of the London Explorers Club, as the organisation will be known. From that day they will meet periodically, combing London to discover the romances hidden in her ancient buildings, the sorrows of her slums, the unexpected beauties of her streets and squares. We want to see London as it really is, a star reporter was told today by the Honorary Secretary, Mrs L. A. Cockett of Grove Hill Road, SE5. We do not propose to confine our explorations to the daytime. We shall see London by moonlight and walk along by the river after dusk has fallen. We shall see London in all her moods, and not only her beauty, but her ugliness as well. We shall try to recapture her histories and memories, seeing all there is to be seen by the flare of the gas jet, by the light of the moon, or from the electric arc lamps. From The Diary of a London Explorer by William Margrey. Reading there by Hayley LePayne and music by Europa 51. So The Diary of a London Explorer is one of my picks for this show. Um, certainly worthy of a whole episode of Ventures and Adventures in Topography. I would have said before, it's just that it's it's a really kind of, it's a slightly bonkers book, really. It's sort of erratic and idiosyncratic, the kind of book you can't imagine existing today. It would probably be a, a, a blog or a, or a website if it existed today. It's part autobiography and part manifesto for the wonderful London Explorers Club, which was formed by William Margery in 1930 as a way to uh, reawaken Londoners to the to the mysteries and the beauties of London because he thought there'd been a, a sad decline in civic pride. Um, but the first half of the book is just taken up with him talking about his life, broken into sort of natty little paragraphs with subheadings about when he was the manager of the school board in Camberwell. 
Doesn't he at one point put himself up as uh, Mayor of London as well? I don't think he stood as Mayor of London. What he proposed, and again, it's one of my favourite parts of the book, is that he proposed replacing the LCC with uh, a metropolitan free state, which... uh, <laughs> to quote him, he says, When I realise my dream, I shall emulate Mussolini and give Londoners plenty of dramas, pageants and shows to wake them up. I could just imagine him riding down the Strand on a, on a white horse, rather like uh, Mussolini mag- imagined he would do in Cairo. Exactly, yeah. He, he, yes, he was, he was slightly uh, pompous, but he was also, he sounds like he was a bit, of a, a, a bit of a wag, a bit of a card. He was into doing sort of, he would throw mutton suppers for the, for the London Explorers Club and people would have to stand up and make a three-minute speech on my favourite ramble. He was also prepared to dig uh, pretty deep into the uh, London infrastructure, wasn't he? He took the uh, he took his people onto visits to power stations and uh, 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 Surrey docks, which I think he calls Venice in London. Exactly. I mean, among the 180 places that they visited over the first three years, uh, included Croydon Aerodrome, mm. the headquarters of the uh, fire brigade. Merry Islington, which was not so merry as it used to be. I imagine him saying, yeah, actually, he probably didn't speak like that. <laughs> Caledonian Market, which was a, a place that I was very interested in. Uh, historic Deptford, guided by the Vicar of Deptford. Um, Samuel Jones's Camberwell Beauty Mills, and well, which specialised in gummed paper. I'm not sure what the link between beauty mills and gummed paper is. And my favourite, actually, was the Peak Freen's biscuit factory i remember it very well you used to see it on the train on the way from charing cross to lewisham i remember down in the 1970s seeing it yeah yeah it was a, i think it's a fascinating book and it's probably i think the nearest you're going to get to sort of a guidebook for sort of urban topographical rambling because it's actually quite it's like a manual in a way to how to explore the city how to rediscover you know rediscover its charms in the the as as they say discover romances hidden in our ancient buildings the sorrows in her slums the unexpected beauties of her streets and squares I should also add here that uh, this book was a uh, an, an early bonding book for John and I. Uh, when we first met, we were slightly edgy around each other. And you were edgy around me. I was only edgy around you because, well, there's a reason I won't say it on there. But, John, I'm edgy around everybody anyway, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> Nick was once uh, partly the inspiration for a comedy character by, by a mutual friend of ours, and I'd seen this character on stage who did dreadful things to mice. So, uh, dead mice. And uh, that was why I was edgy around you. I was expecting you to start decapitating dead mice on the, on the cafe table. But they also did things like, uh, bearing in mind this is the early 30s, they did a, an all-night ramble through central London, mm. which I thought was interesting. That When I bought this book, which was probably in about 2003, 2004, was around the time that uh, Sukhdev Sandhu, I think, did his night haunts or night walks, or somebody else, maybe I've got that wrong, apologies to Sukhdev if that isn't you, but somebody did uh, a walk across London where they walked across London in the middle of the night throughout throughout the night, and it was uh, sponsored by or funded by the Arts Council and uh, Art Angel, and a lot of fuss was made about it, and it was written about in newspapers, and there was publications, and I think it was an exhibition. Uh, but, you know, they were doing that in the 1930s. Yeah, and I did it in 1975, and no-one sponsored me. No. Well, what a terrible injustice that was. Um, they used to do... Uh, the top, they used to do topographical races, where they, you know, where they would start at 
Trafalgar Square and finish in Holborn, but then you'd have to visit uh, ten institutions and there'd be these cryptic clues. He's an experimentalist, isn't he? He's, he's yes. encouraging people to approach the city in ways that reawakens their consciousness and even putting the body under some kind of ordeal in order to, I don't know what, alter the brain chemistry or something. He's actually a, a sort of proto-topographic psychedelicist in a sense. Oh my, well, you've trumped my proto-psychogeographer. Which, uh, but if you look at the kind of, the, the, in a way, I think, I think he's like, if you're familiar with the work of the French intellectual Guy Debord, I think he's probably our nearest equivalent in a way. I'm sure they'd appreciate the Mussolini collection, connection. Well, yes, it's true. I mean, but he was also a member. The, the odd thing there is, although he admired Mussolini, he was a member of the Independent Labour Party. Mm. So he was quite a committed socialist at the same time as well. I suppose he was probably went on to become a committed national socialist. I'm not entirely sure, but... Perhaps uh, Mussolini could have been seen as being socialist in his leanings at some point in his development. I think he was actually a socialist or communist very early on in his career. Maybe he was about 12 or something, because I think by the time he became... <laughs> no, he, was, he, was, he was a fascist, quite a committed fascist for... <laughs> <laughs> Certainly by the 90s. I think somebody's going to contact us and bear me out on that one, Mr. Do Rogers. You? They probably will. I mean, uh, they probably will. Uh, so I think it's time to move on to another book, Nick. What's your next choice? Uh, my next book is uh, Gordon S. Maxwell's Highwayman's Heath, published in 1935. Now, we started uh, our first ever episode of Ventures and Adventures in Topography was based on a Gordon S. Maxwell book, The Fringe of London. Do you remember mm -hmm. we visited Monk's Park? How could I forget? In the freezing cold. Uh, this is a book from somewhat later, from about eight years later, as I said, 1935, and it's a study of Hounslow Heath. Wow. And shall we take a, uh, take a trip out to Hounslow Heath with a reading? Certainly. OK, here we go. It is an extraordinary thing in these days when so much research light has been turned upon almost every town, village or district in Great Britain that the once famous Hounslow Heath in Middlesex can boast of no historian. Paradoxically enough, however, there can be very few places in our shires that have been referred to more often in all sorts and conditions of books, in history, in literature, in topographical works, and most of all, in fiction. But all these mentions are more or less scrappy, in passing, or as a setting for a story, and the strange fact still remains that there does not exist any one volume whose sole topic is Hounslow Heath. That is, until the appearance of the book which you are now reading. What is the reason for this neglect? At first thought, it is, perhaps, a little hard to find one definite reason. The answer is rather made up of several forces of circumstances. First of all, there is not one square foot of Hounslow Heath, as such, existing today. This may surprise some, but it is correct. It is true that a few hundred acres still remain as a drilling and cavalry exercising ground near the barracks but that is enclosed and only unofficially accessible to the public. The fact that this is often overlooked was emphasised by a magazine story I read recently in which the author told of a motorcyclist riding at night over Hounslow Heath and went on to describe the heath as he imagined it to be. What he described was the heath of the 18th century and he had obviously laid the scene of a modern story in a place he had never visited. 
People will write books on the lakes, on Dartmoor, on the broads, or any other place that is more difficult to reach. Places which, perhaps, may be able to score scenically over Hounslow Heath, but are left at the post as regards romantic memories. From Highwayman's Heath by Gordon S. Maxwell. Highwayman's Heath. Don't be fooled by the title. The book looks at a lot more than the history of the highwaymen on Hounslow Heath. And in fact, I've never been particularly interested in highwaymen. Although there's a good fat two or three chapters on the highwaymen. And uh, I've got to say here that Gordon S. Maxwell doesn't romanticise them. He describes Dick Turpin as a thief and a murderer. Uh, it was other aspects of the book that interested me. Again, as with Montague Sharp, it was the elevation of a region that I'd been studying but hadn't formed a coherent image of in my mind into something that I could begin to engage with that attracted me to the book. So how far does he stray from the boundaries of Hounslow Heath? Because this is a substantial book. It must be, it's about 360 pages and they're large pages. I'd, I'd guess that it's getting on for over 100,000 words on a relatively small area. Uh, he's a little bit generous with his uh, concept of what constitutes Hounslow Heath. He goes um, to Staines, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks at Staines and Colnebrook on the Bucks border on the River Colne in the west, and then in the east he follows the northward curve of the Thames, taking in Brentford, Isleworth, Twickenham, Teddington and Hampton. So he does uh, break. He, do, he does extend beyond anything that could have been called real Hounslow Heath. And uh, I've got to say that uh, Maxwell was a real Middlesex aficionado. Fringe of London, for instance, covered several different sites in Middlesex. Indeed, indeed. Middlesex was obviously uh, loomed a lot larger in the consciousness then than it does now, I suppose, because it occupied a large lump of what we would now call Greater London. Not necessarily. In fact, in the introduction, uh, Maxwell takes H.V. Morton to task because his book In Search of England uh, hardly covers Middlesex at all. In fact, people just seem to whisk through Middlesex as fast as possible to get beyond the Colne into Buckinghamshire. One wonders whether it was a residue of the days when people feared the highwaymen coming out of the bushes and shouting stand and deliver. Sorry, that's a hopelessly inane <laughs> comment, isn't it? Well, that, that <laughs> is, it is wonderfully inane, but it does take us on to Morton, which uh, we won't have time to talk about very much. What we will do is we will play out with a reading from H.V. Morton's London, uh, again by Hayley LePayne, and that would have been our final book. Thank you for listening. A podcast is available of all of our shows on the Resonance FM website, and there are, well, you know, there are two blogs. We've published 3,000 words of our own writing this week on our, on our venturesintopography.wordpress.com blog. And here is Hayley LePayne reading from H.V. Morton's London about Leather Lane Market. <laughs> The street is crammed with people. A two-horse dray delivering acid in big glass bottles is hopelessly marooned. Men shout. Crowds collect round any merchant who seems interesting or amusing. The two Negro doctors settle their silk hats on their heads and begin to talk. No symptom is hidden from them. They are realists. As their words strike home, men and women part with tuppence and take a little paper packet. The jazz band plays with remarkable skill. 
The chef takes a potato from his sack and begins to peel it with a small instrument which clips on a knife. He does a brisk trade. A little man with a muffler round his throat shows how easy it is to paint a penny silver. Ice cream is being sold in quantity. Before two o'clock, men are bearing all manner of things away from Leather Lane. They have found the nut, screw or bolt that will come in useful one day. They have discovered their imaginations touched by the sudden beauty of painting a penny silver or buying a half-crown box of Turkish delight for fourpence, flavoured with the jasmine of the mystic heast. Then the bell rings. The luncheon hour is over. Over is that short ramble among bargains, that glorious uncertainty beside a tray of junk. The men of Leather Lane, having made their short, swift raid on spare pennies, pack up their trifles and depart whistling. From H.V. Morton's London.